The Athletic. When Arsenal bought the Norwegian midfielder Martin Odegaard for £30 million in 2021, the expectation among supporters wasn't particularly high. Uh, This was a player, after all, who as a teenager was dubbed the heir to Messi's throne, but was now on the periphery of Real Madrid squad. Fast forward 18 months, he's not only Arsenal's playmaker, but possibly at the moment the best in his position in the league. It has been quite a rise for him. I'm Mark Chapman. This is the Athletic Football Podcast. Good player. I think it's a young boy. He's 16 years old, right? But I see a lot of potential in that in that player. Good left foot. Comes to Odegaard. Oh, yeah. Deflected in. Martin Odegaard having scored his first goal for the club in midweek. Gets his first Premier League goal for Arsenal. Martin Odegaard. Odegaard. We must. is a must. Whether they want to break the bank, whether the coaches want to go and borrow money, whether they want to borrow money from the government, I don't care. Now that big transfer news, Martin Odegaard is in London for a medical ahead of a return to Arsenal on a permanent deal. He had a label at 16 years old because he went to Real Madrid. If you put a label on a player, it's, it's extremely difficult to now modify that label. I think he's doing it. He's doing it the right way. He's the, the national team captain at the moment. It's not over yet. proud to be named captain for this amazing football club. Let's go. Look at his numbers. That is what you want from your creative midfield player. And that's what we're getting off of him at the moment. So happy. Just finally, manager of the month, player of the month. It's a good good time for you a lot at the moment. It is a really good time and thank you so much. And we have really appreciate that people value what we do. But in football is tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So let's keep going. Odegaard alongside. Martin Odegaard has pinned it into the bottom corner. Dreaming. They are dreaming big. So for this one, we're joined by the Athletics Arsenal writer Amy Lawrence and our tactics writer Michael Cox to discuss Arsenal's number eight in more detail. Uh, Arsenal top of the league, Amy, beat Tottenham at their place. You look very happy at the moment. I mean, you always look happy, obviously, but you know, you bounced onto this podcast. Well, I've been worse, you know. <laughs> makes sense. I mean, from the last 15 years of working with you, it makes a real change, doesn't it? You know, all <laughs> these arsehole people I work with, all suddenly they're absolutely flying. Well, uh, flying at a, a reasonable level, I would hope, because, you know, anybody who's got any sense knows that it's not even halfway yet. So it's about <laughs> enjoying that ride at the moment and seeing where it ends up. Uh, the, the interesting thing about the, the, the Tottenham performance uh, at the weekend, Erdegaard was instrumental and it kind of just defined or was yet another example of his role for Arsenal this season, both as a player and as a captain. I think what's most interesting about that is rewinding slightly. And when Martin Odegaard first came... And of course, originally it was a loan, came in in January and that was made permanent the following summer. What you got from him was bits and pieces that looked very beautiful. But what you didn't necessarily get was a consistency uh, and a level where you felt like here was a guy who was ready to grasp the biggest matches. And quite often early on, Erdegaard, you know, shined most incandescently against maybe the the slightly less intense opponents. And I remember going out to Norway 
last year to his hometown and meeting up with a bunch of uh, uh, of uh, uh, the Oslo Arsenal Supporters Club to watch a game. And we talked a lot about, you know, uh, uh, what he could bring and what they hoped for him. And I th- everybody sort of agreed what he needed was, a, you know, a dominant performance where he was showing that he could be a real leader of the team rather than someone who embellished it. And I think, funnily enough, he got sent off that day at Crystal Palace or gave away a penalty or something something pretty grim anyway. It wasn't his best day uh, to watch him in his, uh, in his home environment. But I think what you can see about Erdegaard now is exactly what everybody needed to see from him, which is that elevation, where it's not just about being this great prospect who clearly is blessed with great natural ability that made him into a kind of child prodigy. Um, The expectation that came from that, the journey he had along the way, but actually someone who is uh, found, I think, happiness, found himself a home where he belongs and found himself a place where he can express himself and be important and uh, uh, be be the man on the pitch. On the pitch, what is he, Michael? Well, I suppose he's a number 10, but in Arteta's system, which is very strict positionally, he always plays in the inside right channel. You never see him drifting across. He's got that fixed position. And the player in the inside left channel is Xhaka, and obviously the centre forward is, is Jesus or Nketiah. And it's funny that Arteta has, has really always had this kind of shape in mind right from his first two or three games as Arsenal manager. Obviously, the player playing the Erdegaard role at that point was Mesut Ozil, who became, you know, almost the the dominant figure when he wasn't playing as much as when he was. But Erdegaard obviously is is so much more suited to Arsenal, to Arteta's system than Ozil because of the work he does without the ball. A couple of years ago, I wouldn't have said he has the guile or the creativity of of Ozil, and maybe that the assist numbers won't quite get to that uh, rate. But he's he's certainly not far off, and he, he contributes a lot as well in terms of goal scoring. He's getting into the box and he's winning games. The two goals he scored away against Wolves and a, a difficult fixture for Arsenal, I think, shows that he's a, a match winner in himself. And he's also just got the consistency, which I don't think even in his even last season in his first half season alone there were flashes of his brilliance. But I think he's gone up uh, several levels this season. Does it help tactically that that you have? the two players in the roles that you described, the sort of, you know, the inside right, the inside left, that they are very different. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. There is a nice balance to that midfield, isn't there? There's no there's no sense that, yeah, they're overlapping in their duties. Obviously, Xhaka is kind of storming forward from a deeper position, maybe not the most creative, but is getting into some good goal-scoring positions. And Erdegaard, really a, a pure playmaker. And he's just got good relationships, I think, with all the Arsenal attackers, you know, he likes floating the ball over for Martinelli at the far post. He combines well with Saka in that channel. I remember that goal that Saka scored away against uh, Leeds in actually probably Arsenal's worst performance of this season came from a, a one-two between those two players. He just seems to connect everyone in a almost quite a languid way. But yeah, he's he's been excellent so far. I mean, I assume this is the reason why you're doing a podcast, but he's been one <laughs> of the best players in the Premier League this season. And uh, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but I always think, you know, with, with kind of diminutive play, playmakers like him, I always think, you know, in these kind of months in English football, it can be difficult in terms of the weather, in terms of the pitches. But if you're coming from Norway, it's probably not much of a problem, I guess. 
Look, look, I've got four of these to fill a week. These podcasts, so we'll we'll do anything. Although he does absolutely deserve uh, deserve a, a whole podcast on his own. He Art De Ross described him as Arsenal's conductor before Christmas. Amy, yeah, I think he's um, he's tried to take that on board, but I think it's it, it's more about how he fits into the team. And as Michael was just alluding to, there is this you know, considering they play with quite a lot of self expression, it's still quite a organised system. And I don't think that he'd be able to conduct without the quality of player around him. And I, I think I remember writing at the tail end of last season about how people were wanting more from him, but that was maybe dependent on the players around him. And the fact that some of those components around him have changed, you know, uh, when you consider that that last season, Arsenal had uh, uh, Bamiyang briefly uh, and Lacassette, who was struggling for goals and struggling to make a lot of kind of uh, deep, you know, runs, <laughs> darts into the box as such. It was more difficult for him to combine, I think, with, with this system that was evolving. And obviously, Xhaka was playing further back and Zinchenko wasn't there and they didn't have that same balance uh, as has emerged this season. And I think he's one of those where conducting a higher quality orchestra makes you look a lot better than trying to bring together a slightly uh, less harmonious band. It's impossible because of the Arteta Guardiola link not to look at Arsenal and look at City as well at the same time. So, so is he? Do you both think is he Arteta's De Bruyne here? In literal terms, he's playing in the, pretty much the same role, albeit in a different way. Obviously, being left-footed rather than right-footed, I think is the change. But yeah, in terms of his status in in the side, I do think he's got that. He's got that creative responsibility. And like I say, it's not just the fact that he's creative. I think the fact that he's scoring goals as well. I mean, that's something De Bruyne has always given to City and Wolfsburg before him. He's always scored goals. And when you look at when Arsenal have won the Premier League uh, on, on previous occasions, 98, 2002, 2004, I don't necessarily... I mean, obviously there was a Thierry Henry in, in the last two of those, but I kind of associate it with goal-scoring midfielders. I think of Mark Overmars and then Freddie Jungberg. And, and Robert Pires. And I think it's it's kind of little things like that. When when that starts to go for you, when attacking midfielders are kind of getting into double figures for the season, they're the little things that make you think, well, maybe Arsenal can actually win this title. I think it was quite interesting that Odegaard himself said recently in one of the interviews that, you know, he's being told to get into shooting positions more. And I think that uh, in a slightly Urzilesque fashion, he always had it in his mind to be more of a creator. And initially when he came, never mind comparisons with Ozil, there were also some comparisons at times with Bergkamp. And there's not much higher praise that you can give to uh, an Arsenal playmaker than that. And of course, when Dennis Bergkamp came in, he did hit that magic sweet spot of creating and scoring uh, almost equally. But I don't think that Martin Odegaard saw that in his own game. And it's almost as if it needed to be unlocked a little bit. And I think that the regularity with which he's adding goals to his game has been almost a bonus. Let's see if it can be sustained, because I think when you look at his uh, his history, he's not usually been massively prolific. So this is something that is is part of almost, you know, his evolution. And I think that that's, that again, going back to it, it's the, the key aspect of Martin Odegaard this season is people who know him and have admired him for years watching him come through at sort of 14, 15 years old back home in Norway, have been convinced 
of what he can do. But I've been almost scratching their heads at times about why it hasn't happened yet. This is like obviously going back a year, maybe. And, you know, there are some critics who feel that his move to Real Madrid when he did do it at the age of 15 wasn't the right call and that maybe he should have gone somewhere where they're more noted for nurturing young players. Borussia Dortmund was in the mix. Ajax were, were in the mix. And Arsenal, even then, were in the mix. And these were all clubs with a much better track record of taking a young talent and bringing them through a bit more carefully and concentrating on their development. But that, that can't really have been his decision. No, of course Amy. not. His father, who's uh, a pro, now a manager in Norway and was a professional player for, uh, I think he spent a decade at the club where Odegaard came through. In fact, there's quite sweet detail about how because, of course, a lot of uh, football was a bit more amateur not so long ago in, in countries like Norway, Scandinavia. It's become much more professional since. Um, Martin Odegaard's dad had, I think, some clothes shops in Drammen. Um, and he would go to work at the shop and take uh, young Martin down to the club and sort of leave him there with a packed lunch and a football on his own. And until someone arrived that he could play football with. I mean, he was completely obsessed as a kid with training and training and technique and, and not just training, but quality training. And he used to train on his own. He would train with anyone he could find, basically, when he was a kid. And um, apparently the, even the day that he signed for uh, Stromskutsat, his first club in in, uh, in Norway, he was... The, the, the managing director is... Um, Tori Andre Flo's brother, Jostein, who you may remember briefly, was over in the UK with Sheffield United and so on. The big commanding powerhouse of a Nordic centre forward. And he said that Martin, he had the, doing the contracts and Martin's like fidgeting with a, like almost with a ball under his feet, un, under the desk and not really paying. And he was looking at the contract and he was, wasn't interested in any other detail except the line in his contract that said that he was allowed to train as often as he wanted. Because as a young player, there were limits about how often you could train. You actually weren't allowed to train very much or weren't allowed to play very much. There was restrictions. So his obsession was that. And he went and signed the contract and there was a noise coming from upstairs. The club kind of headquarters was closed. It was dark. And Flo was like, what's going on up there in the gym? And he went upstairs and there was Erdegaard in the gym on his own, listening to music, kicking balls. He just signed his first professional deal. So I think he had that single-mindedness and that uh, dedication and, th and he still has that, but he just needed to find the place where he felt comfortable enough to really be himself on a football pitch. And, and when you hear that single-mindedness and determination, Michael, you can probably understand why they, went, they chose Real Madrid because he, will, he would back himself or his family would back him as well to deliver there. Whatever the pros and cons of kids making it at Real Madrid yeah I think that's fair I think it does show his ambition and yeah his self-belief that he could break into the side obviously in hindsight you have to say maybe it wasn't the best move for him and it's interesting that he went to I mean he went to the Netherlands who uh, you know all their clubs traditionally are very good at developing players because that is part of their business model and also Real Sociedad who have um, a great history of bringing through young players so yeah I guess he maybe got the best of both worlds in the end This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. I wonder whether, actually, the trials and tribulations at Real Madrid and going to a different country at 15 might not have helped him as a footballer for many years, but they might help him now with his perspective on football and life. Yeah, yeah, and I think, um, you know, just even the, the question of him being chosen as captain for club and country is quite an interesting that relates to that idea. Because from the outside looking in, he was not everybody's obvious choice as captain. He doesn't strike when you. you. When, you mm-hmm. when you heard that he was the Arsenal captain, what was your initial response? I completely expected that, but that's only because I'd almost been um, <laughs> brainwashed uh, almost by things that I'd heard from people who see him at close quarters or work with him at close quarters. There were two things that were really apparent is that like from day one, Mikel Arteta absolutely adored Erdegaard and just saw him as almost like a star pupil but also uh, speaking to the Norway manager because he you know he's not the most demonstrative personality he's a very steady guy but he is someone who manages to command respect in not the most verbose way but he's apparently one of these guys when he talks you listen to him and he speaks a lot of sense and he is very communicative on the pitch. And he's like a coach's dream in that way, in that I think his coaches both feel everything that they uh, want, all the ideas they have about the game, Martin gets that. And Martin is able to transfer that onto the pitch. So it's more of a technical aid that he brings rather than a kind of tub thumping determination that he that he would bring that you might associate with traditional captaincy, but I just a, a really interesting point that the the Norway captains made him captain quite yeah sorry excuse me the Norway manager chose him um, at quite a young age and it was it was quite surprising back in Norway and this was before Arteta made him captain and he made a really interesting point about how um, it's part of him being a kind of central to a growing project. And for example, Norway didn't qualify for the World Cup, but they're looking to get to the Euros in Germany 2024. And he said, making Martin captain at this early stage was a big part of that. I wanted him to learn. And if you see Captain Odegaard now, compared to the captain who started, he's grown a lot. He's a lot more secure. That's not just down to Norway, but also Arsenal Arteta and the way they have taken care of him. He has coaches who trust him. Uh, he needed to settle down more, no more loans. He needed to find his club. And Arsenal are a good club because they're also developing something. They know they're not quite there, but they're on the way with a young team, the same as Norway. Martin feels the similarities and feels he has responsibilities in both camps. He's a quiet leader. He isn't the guy who speaks loudest or most, but when he speaks, he speaks sense, is very concrete with good values. And I think it's worth pointing out as well, until I checked the stats, I hadn't really appreciated the extent of Norway's malaise in international football. I mean, this was a country that was a proper force in the in the mid-1990s. They haven't qualified for a single tournament this century, which when you consider the expansion of the Euros, uh, 
is remarkable. I mean, you look at the countries who've had, I mean, Latvia have got there, North Macedonia have got there, Romania have got there, and Norway have been absent for 25 years or so. So now, obviously, with Holland and Erdegaard, I mean, at this point in time, you'd have to say are going to be both probably on the six-man shortlist for player of the year. Yeah, suddenly that's just transformed into them being, I guess, you know, one of the one of the coming sides you would expect in international football. On the captaincy, though, two things that Amy said as well, Michael. Though you know, the from an international level, a, a captain who can lead a project for a coach is hugely important. Bearing in mind, we, we you know sometimes we still talk about captaincy. Oh, you know, give it to the give it to the big centre half. He'll kick it, head it, and beat his chest and shout at everybody, and there you go. So at an international level. A thinker who will be able to lead a project on behalf of the coach, but with 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 his peers. But then also, and so many sports search for this, doesn't matter whether it's rugby union, rugby league, NFL, cricket, whatever it is. If a coach can get a captain who can get his message across on the field, be his eyes and ears on a field for, you know, players being responsible for their own decisions, you've struck gold. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it probably says something about Arteta. He is a coach that is about tactics, about communication, about discipline. And yeah, I I completely understand what you meant. And I think maybe what you implied when you asked Amy the question about what she thought when he got made captain, because it's so unlike, I mean, we weren't even considering Arsenal in in title challenging uh, terms at this point. But you look at those who have won the title as captain recently. Fernandinho, Jordan Henderson, Vincent Kompany, John Terry, Wes Morgan, Nemanja Vidic. It's still pretty much the kind of old school, the kind of person you'd make your captain in your Sunday league team, isn't it? It's the big lad at the back who who rules instructions on. So yeah, it would be, I think, probably quite unlike anything we've seen before if, uh, if a player like Erdegaard, who, as Amy says, in addition to being not a traditional position for captain is not a real loud leader. If he can lead Arsenal to, you know, glory, not necessarily this season, but in the future, I do think it will be something quite different to what we've seen before in English football. Uh, the, the other reason with the captaincy, whilst people may have raised eyebrows, Amy, not you, obviously, but why some people have, is because Arsenal have, have historically made a right mess of, <laughs> of who they've made captain. Well, they have, haven't they, over... I don't know, how far back? Oh. Last decade, maybe? I mean, my God, oh, that club seems stinkers. to have had more... Yeah, it seems to have had more issues with, with the armband than than any other that I can think of. I'll, in the I'll never forget the Unai Emery voting system. I mean, what was yeah. that all about? Yeah. Good God. Uh, imagine, the, you know, the players all having a secret ballot. <laughs> but, yeah. but I think that... Um, the, the other thing that Martin Odegaard brings is a, you know, a, a very helpful example in terms of professionalism. He is one of those classic cases where, as demonstrated from the way he behaved as a boy, he's the first one around, he's the last one to leave, he's out there on the pitch all the time, he's immaculate in what he's doing, he's a perfectionist, um, he's learning, but he also has a great, you know, kind of exudes a little bit of security and confidence about the way he he believes he should be behaving on and off the pitch and I think that so in that way he 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 kind of his personality is something that I think Mikel Arteta valued let's say especially after 
the previous captain being um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Mm. And the problems that that set as an example, you know, when your captain is late or doesn't show up for a team meeting or is he's got this kind of casual having a good time vibe, which Aubameyang had. I mean, he was very popular, Aubameyang, as a person, but it didn't necessarily strike Arteta as what he wanted his captain to represent. And I think that was part of what did for that situation in the end. You mentioned Bergkamp as, as well earlier as a comparison. Are there, are there other... Are, is he similar in other ways? I mean, you talk to former pros who played against Bergkamp in particular, and they actually talk about how horrible he was. And the, in a, the you know, for all for all the glorious, you know, skill and presence and goals and all of that. I'm not sure. I'm think, not sure I, I can see I think the old school. I think the uh, no. But I think the old school. Is, yeah. Yeah, I think the old school phrase was he could mix it as well. Yeah. Could, could sharp Bergkamp. elbows, but, isn't that what they say? But yeah, but there was an inner. What I'm saying is that for all the football and for all the skills, there was an inner steel and a toughness about Burkham. Now, some of the stuff Burkham did, maybe you couldn't get away with nowadays, such as elbows and whatever else. You, do, you, do you sense, is there an edge to Erdegaard or is that not there at all? <sighs> not yet. I haven't seen too right. much evidence of that. I think he's very determined, but I don't know, you know, physically whether he's got that same edge that Burkham had. And I think, again, it, it still feels fairly fresh and fairly new as we're speaking. Odegaard has just sort of taken a central uh, catalytic role. Is that a word? Um, a what role? He's been the catalyst. I don't yeah, think, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe I should yeah. say that again. Uh, and- no, no, we'll keep it like that. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. He's been the right. catalyst. Appreciate right. it, yeah. So, <laughs> so he's been the catalyst in, in, a, in a massive game uh, at Tottenham away. But I think it needs to be seen more in the big games because that was maybe, you know, the first of the, of the really monumental matches where he was a dominant figure. So let's see if he can repeat that against Man United on Sunday. Let's see how that goes in the games against Man City that are coming up. Let's see... Uh, how it goes when Arsenal go back to Newcastle, which is going to be a difficult game uh, 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 this season come, coming further down the line, etc., etc. So I think it feels like he's at the beginning of a, maybe a new step of what he can do. But I I think he'll have to show that there's more to come there in a way for him to, to be, the, you know, the great, to fulfil, I suppose, all those expectations people had at him age 15. Let me end this in a... It's a very school report way, because no matter how good a school report is, they always stick something on about areas to improve. Where where can and could Martin Odegaard improve individually and for Arsenal? Michael? I actually looked up the stats for this one because I thought you might ask this question, <laughs> and I had one in mind. He is very left-footed. I mean, he's got a wonderful left foot and I think it's often more noticeable when left footers are a bit one-footed. But I looked up the stats uh, in his Premier League career. So that's two years now since he joined Arsenal. He's had 99 shots with his left foot and eight with his right foot. So he can be a little bit predictable. There was one moment, I think away at Chelsea, where Arsenal had a really good counter-attacking chance and he was desperate to get it on his left foot rather than go on his right. And that kind of held up the play. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's only just turned 24 and no player's perfect at 24, so I'm sure he'll improve on that in the future. 
Q Q grumpy fans who who tend to be middle aged men who always say this in my experience of football games who always go bloody hell it's a professional footballer why can't he use both feet? <laughs> uh, Amy, for you, I think um, because he's been on this upward trajectory during this season, it'll just be continuing it really, and he's just got to be the guy who is making Arsenal tick, keep trying to get goals, keep trying to assist keep leading in a way that the team is responding to, keep trying to take more of those big games by the scruff of the neck. That would be the challenge for me. Okay. Hopefully for you starting on Sunday. Indeed. (laughs) Uh, By the way, just one final one as as we're in the transfer window or something completely and utterly different. Are Arsenal in the running for Declan Rice? Well, after what happened with um, Mikhailo Mudrik, it's kind of difficult to... (laughs) To feel that Arsenal are in the running for anyone. Yeah, nobody connected to Arsenal (laughs) wants to say that they're in the running for anyone just to keep it secret. Yeah, I think the timing of that coming out was particularly unhelpful in terms of any kind of confidence. (laughs) There has been, I think, you know, mutual expressions of interest, let's say, Um, which I think is surprising in that uh, Chelsea, of all teams, were probably the the side he was most expected to to turn up at eventually when he left West Ham. But I think that Arsenal do feel there is a window there. There's a chink of light. Uh, I suppose a little bit depends on how clubs finish this season in terms of Champions League and titles and so on. Although I've always thought that that can be overplayed and that if uh, we've seen that sort of a combination of money and the great sale of a project can uh, make players join teams who are not enjoying their best time so I, I kind of don't buy into that too strongly okay it can be but to come full circle and this doesn't apply to Declan Rice but to to bring it to an end and this is links back to Erdegaard when you look Michael at what has happened to young players at Arsenal over recent years and it could be whether they're one of their own coming through an academy so in Bakaya Saka or it could be how they've developed William Saliba you know when there's been some criticism at the time about why he's on loan again and on loan again you talk about clubs that are attractive to a certain demographic of player or you know big young talents around the world all of a sudden Arsenal have taken a giant leap forward there yeah and I think that will be attractive to players won't it Uh, especially someone like Declan Rice who's clearly very ambitious very driven but has been playing in a side that I think it's probably more about organisation and getting the job done rather than necessarily advancing individual players. I mean, even, you know, you look at Granit Xhaka's development under Arteta, I can imagine Declan Rice thinking, cool, I'd love to be a player like that. Someone who's kind of regarded as a defensive midfielder, but can push forward, contribute in the final third. So, yeah, I mean, just by moving into, you know, the position they're in, Arsenal kind of opened themselves up to players who... I don't think they would have been linked with even in the summer. Um, yeah, it's been quite a transformation. I suppose if you're Declan Rice, I mean, you know, and you're being sold the possibility of a team who's in the title race versus a team who's in the West London race. I mean, you know, it shouldn't be that difficult, should it? I couldn't resist, sorry. <laughs> uh, 
Chelsea fans, you do have your own podcast uh, where uh, there, there is less criticism. Yeah, listen, I've got to say, right. listen, I say that as a, 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 having seen Arsenal just lose two players to Chelsea. So, you know, it's obviously a tongue somewhere near you're, the cheek. Yes, you're more than allowed to say that. If you want more Arsenal uh, stuff, then listen to Handbrake Off. That's the Athletics Arsenal podcast. Uh, plenty more as well on The Athletic from Amy and Michael and Michael has the football tactics podcast as well. Uh, this week, what you look at? How many players you need to win a title? Uh, yes, that is correct. Yeah, good, good knowledge. <laughs> Even I'm not really across that yet, but yeah, you're spot on. Thanks right. for reminding me. Right. Well, when Michael knows what he's recording, then that's well worth listening to as well. That'll be available Thursday afternoon. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Michael. You can subscribe to the Athletic now for just one pound ninety nine a month for a year at theathletic.com slash football pod. And we'll have another episode for you tomorrow. The Athletic.